1985, a fly falls into a machine, sentencing a man to death. You try to make sense of all the paperwork, but more enticing are some curious dreams. In some, you're flying around, slaying monsters. In others, a man is ziplining around the city, fixing vents. Elsewhere, a professor of Hitler studies is legally dead, but that doesn't assuage his fears. You both want to live. If only you could get the state to sign off on what that should mean. There's no box in which to account for this double vision. Welcome to episode 17. I'm your host, Timothy Wilcox. I have a PhD in English, and I'm exploring out the sort of history of prominent visions throughout the 20th and 21st century as they occur simultaneously with really sort of interesting prominent visions in film and trying to really sort of map out sort of those connections. And so I'm joined today by Noah, who is a writer and musician. You can find him on Twitter at Try Cypress. And so we're talking about the novel White Noise by Don DeLillo, released January 21st, 1985. And then one month later, February 20th, 1985, the film Brazil, directed by Terry Gilliam. And so th these are sort of very interesting as coming out at the same moment where Brazil is this British film satire of a lot of contemporary life and White Noise is the same uh, from a more American perspective. And s some of the more immediate surface level things of what they're satirizing is is different but there's a lot of similar concerns and anxieties running th between them and so i'm excited to get into that uh in the sort of goal within the goal of wanting to delve deep through the visions of each of them we'll be going throughout the the whole of them and so i want to start with sort of a quick overview for those who are unfamiliar maybe you you know you read or watched these a while ago an overview of each real quick and get into the whole sort of overview. So if you want to, you know, avoid that information, you know, I'd recommend, you know, checking out both these works and then hopefully coming back to this. But uh, no, you had mentioned Brazil is sort of where this first came up. And then I had noticed that white noise had come out so close together with the film. Did you want to start by introducing the film and, you know, what's going on with that and and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So Brazil is the story of Sam Lowry, who's sort of a lowly bureaucratic worker in a sort of totalizing dystopian central bureaucracy called Central Services. And the film kind of follows his journey upwards in this bureaucracy. And we end up finding out that he's actually like a really smart guy and he has connections in high places. He just simply has no ambition, um, but he sort of sees a girl in a dream and then sees her in real life and realizes that it kind of sparks this desire to get access to more information. And so he sort of starts moving up and all this really zany stuff happens. I mean, it's Terry Gilliam, so it really goes off the rails. And yeah, I mean, it's this really stark vision of that very zany, very funny and also like horrifically dark. Uh, and they kind of just intersperse the two sort of throughout the whole film. And it's really quite long. Um, but yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of really interesting parallels to White Noise, if you want to maybe introduce that one. Yeah. So the novel is narrated by this guy, Jack Ladney, who very different from the sort of meek, uh, aspirationless protagonist of the film. He's this pioneering professor of Hitler studies, uh, though, I mean, he, he does have some deficiencies, I guess, some professional deficiencies in that he's just now trying to learn German finally, despite his sort of research focus for, you know, two decades or whatever. And he has this colleague at this college on the hill, Murray, who teaches the cinema of car crashes and kind of looking up to what Jack has accomplished in a way, wants to pioneer Elvis studies. And uh, Jack is married to this woman, Babette, and this is like his fifth marriage. And they have various kids from various marriages, and they're both terribly afraid of death. And then this tragedy happens where there's a spill of chemicals from a rail car, what then is called this airborne toxic event. And this sort of heightens their sense of fear. And so then the, you know, they're, they're caught up in trying to deal with that. And you have a uh, one line of commentary around like pharmaceutical stuff where Babette is so desperate for this drug called dialer, which is supposed to treat the terror of death 
that she ends up cheating on her husband with this guy who can get her access to it. And this other realm is this sort of uh, consumer culture world where, you know, there's this interest in the what you can learn from television and B-movies and cereal boxes and the idea of like the supermarket as this like bright, almost kind of holy place. And and so you have all of that going on, this world of information. And then at the same time, you have, you have dialer as this drug, which is supposed to treat the terror of death, but it also causes you to be unable to distinguish between words and things. And so it builds up to this point where Jack hunts down the guy who is sleeping with his wife and shoots him, then feels bad and brings him to this sort of hospital of these weird German nuns who have these fake beliefs. And there's this sense of the necessity of belief and ritual and so on to help us navigate the sort of world and our anxieties and, you know, escape from the overwhelming terror of, of death and so on. And his obsession with Hitler is, is part of that in a way where it's a, you know, there's someone comments, some people are larger than life. Hitler is larger than death. You thought he could protect you. He doesn't quite agree with that, but there is a sense throughout the novel of this interest in Hitler as um something that that he's interested in for the obsession with him and the idea of putting on these uniforms and so on and how that sort of protects you and and then seeing these sorts of parallels in what the extent that people go to to sort of avoid really facing some of the more horrific elements of reality and just to i guess maybe kick off the conversation in, in terms of bringing these works together so, you know, I mentioned Murray teaches the cinema of car crashes, and he talks about his students at one point. He says uh, their view of television is that it's worse than junk mail. Television is the death throes of human consciousness, according to them. They're ashamed of their television past. They want to talk about movies. And so there's a sense that, you know, there's a lot to learn from film and so on. And, you know, he's looking at these B-movies. Brazil is, is a much more crafted very idiosyncratic work as you mentioned no it's very long and as i understand it had some issues about coming out partly around the the length and partly around how odd it was at parts and so yeah i mean it's far cry from the sort of drive-through b movies that murray is studying but you know i think there's a parallel to be drawn you know in the sense of like if that's what you find in in those movies you know there's a lot to be seen in this is the sort of film parallel coming out simultaneous to this novel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there's a sense that, you know, the difference between television, especially the kind of 80s television that Murray is talking about and Brazil or, you know, film as like an art form is art and film, they're trying to do something. And then TV is most likely just trying to keep eyes on the screen. Um, and so I think what so interesting about Murray is, you know, he's sort of like, he would make a really good Twitter poster. He would, he's like a critical theorist who sees something and everything. And so he looks at these TV and these, these B movies. And I think he's analyzing the sense of they are trying to keep eyes on the screen. That is in itself, you know, endlessly fascinating. What is it that they do to get people to continue watching and to get people to just grow this endless obsession with TV you know, he mentions it in relation to the family, how it is like a glue um, for the family, the modern family that Murray loves to just sit in and take notes on. And I mean, in particular, he says to, you know, view it as a child, like with innocence. And I, you know, I found that so strange because the way I think of TV now is like viewing it as a child is so dangerous. I mean, the advertisements that they launch at children are like the most invasive and loud and, you know, it causes so much behavioral change but yeah i mean i think that's what murray is really getting at is film for the students is like oh they want to grasp at something that's sort of transcendent and that's what art tries to do and murray is like no i'm so obsessed with the imminent i want to know what these tv shows are really doing to people what these b movies are doing to people you know what what like lurks behind the psychological tricks that they're trying to get at all right yeah i forgot about murray studying the family there's a great scene where, so the Babette, it does these televised lectures. And so she's on the TV and the family's sitting around watching them. And there's this 
commentary about how it's like her face is almost leaking through the TV. You can almost sort of feel her there. And the youngest child, once the program ends, is just like clutching at the television, crying. And Murray is sitting there just taking notes as the child just clutches at the TV crying. Yeah, it's very sad. Um, and I think Jack had the exact same reaction as the child, uh, only he didn't have this sort of emotional reaction. But his internal monologue was something of the sorts of like, I didn't recognize her. You know, she already seemed in the TV to be like an ex-wife to him, which, you know, in my head, uh, that's not at all what he wants Babette to be. You know, he sees Babette as like the culmination of his numerous romantic endeavors. So to see her on the TV, it was like, it was so alien for him. And I mean, it makes sense because the TV, as Murray puts it, is like, it's so abstracting. It's just dots of color that sort of recreate, you know, a real image or a real person. And so Jack is seeing, you know, his beloved wife, just like his kid is seeing his beloved mom and has no idea how to like reconcile the two of, you know, she's real, but that's like her image and it's not real. And it instantly renders her so alien. Yeah, he's he sees her on the TV and it's like almost described as if she's like dead or gone or something. And I think, you know, part of that also is that his relationship to TV is that he watches a ton of like documentary type content around Hitler. There's a comment at some point that television couldn't exist without him, that he's like, props it up he's on there so much and you know that i thought was interesting he's has some interest in tv but it's also like what is this weird like distant study for him you know that his lifelong project of hitler studies that you know once he starts to see his wife in that space it it feels weird i think and there's this comment later on because you had mentioned like the idea of viewing it as a child Right. He's, he's talking to the scientist, Winnie. And so it's like, why does that make you proud to be an American? And it's like the infant's brain develops in response to stimuli. We still lead the world in stimuli. Yeah. That, yeah. That's such a great quote. Um, and it's so it's so American. And I think, you know, what's re- what's cool about these two works that we picked is I really think you can see the sort of differences in how, you know, an artist within their community is going to satirize their community because Brazil, I don't, at least in my head, besides that one wonderful image of the consumers for Christ flag, there isn't a lot of like direct critique of consumerism so much as like so focused on bureaucracy and paperwork. And that was sort of the the main rub where white noise is all about this ever present desire to shop and to fill the hole and to understand yourself by how you're grasping on like these consumer identities and so yeah that that quote which is just so great is exactly that it's america is like the laboratory um for that like psychological operations that occur on the television that's 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 all them yeah and then in brazil you know there's the dream sequences where he imagines himself as this winged fantastical hero you know, fighting these monsters in this weird dream version of the city. And, you know, that I think, you know, comes from this sort of media, right? These these images of this sort of fantastical hero who is not caught up in this dull bureaucracy, but who is, you know, doing exciting things, great things, and so on. And, and so he's, he's a bit of a product of that. And then we see at one point, you have this busy workroom and information retrieval where you have people sort of scrambling around, moving papers around on these computers and you have the the boss watching them. And then he, he ducks into his office for something. And as soon as he's gone, everyone just stops working and they're all just watching this television program. And then he, he peeks out and they're immediately they're all back working. He ducks back in his office and they, they turn back to the television. And so there's this it's it's not a very prominent part in the film, but it, it gives you just enough to see this obsession with media images, which you also then see the consequence of in Sam Lowry's mother, who is obsessed with looking younger and so on. Mm, yeah, and I, I, I sort of interpreted that as a status thing. And so, yeah, I mean, media absolutely props up what it is that is associated with high status. But with Sam's mom, there was like, she was grasping on to her really lofty status within this, you know, massive bureaucratic system. Uh, and her image was really central to that. 
I don't know if I ever really connected the two in terms of like the media images, just because, you know, Brazil doesn't give us a lot of, you know, a look at what the media of that world even looks like, besides from like a few shots of these like large scale advertisements and like propaganda. Uh, and I think one of the main differences between the sort of medium of film and the novel is, you know, the novel can use lists and white noise is full of these like really vivid lists that paint these pictures, especially in the supermarket of like all this, this bright colors, this branded merchandise, uh, you know, Wilder, their son, just looking around and like being just overwhelmed by all this, the noise and the hustle and the bustle. And you can't really do that in film, at least not in the way that it's done in white noise, where it's sort of oppressive and overwhelming, because even Brazil gets to the point where it gets overwhelming and there's all this stuff that's happening on the screen, but it can't lay out the sort of phenomenology of being overwhelmed by media images and like branded colors and all this in the same way that the novel can. Yeah, there's a scene early on also where they run into Murray at the supermarket and he has all of these products that are explicitly unbranded where it's like, it's just a can that says like canned peaches and, you know, things like that, where it's like, it's the completely basic thing. And he has a package of bacon and it comments like, usually there's a clear strip so you could see a sample slice and it doesn't have that. And it's like this weird closed off, it's the name of the product that matters and you don't need to see or know more than that. And it's like this ideological thing. I feel like it's almost like a sort of a miniature revolt to get those non-branded items. Because I know like all of my peers will we'll go to, you know, a Walgreens and get like the nice brand stuff because that's sort of like our own way in a sense of like rebelling against the advertisements and stuff that we were bombarded with as children watching TV. We go for that, the absolute most plain package of peanuts you can find. And I think that's sort of like Murray is like an aesthetic. He's, he's, well, he, he's dedicating his craft. He's trying to post as good as possible. And to do that, you need to rid yourself of any of like um, sort of competing interests. So I think if he had brand loyalties, it would almost make no sense with his character. You know, he's, he lives in like a sparse apartment that only has a TV and he just sits in the middle of the room. You know, I imagine him like cross-legged, just like scribbling in his notebook, generating posts. I mean, Murray needs to get on Twitter. That's the point. For her, yeah. And I mean, I think there's also, he has this sense that where he talks at one point about, you know, that you have to see past the violence in the car crashes and that un underneath there's a sense of like innocence in a way where an optimism where embedded in each car crash is this sense of technological improvement and the sort of craft that goes into these stunts. And there's a sense of moving, you know, ahead, the sense of progress. I think, I think it's interesting, you know, there's something kind of, uh, I guess, capitalistic about that, but he has this, this you know, very kind of scholarly relationship to it where you know he doesn't want to be buying the latest new and improved version of x but he finds it interesting to like sort of study it kind of coldly and there, there's this idea with the what is it the drug dialer as well that idea that the system sets up certain anxieties and then sells the sort of cure part of it on the media front is this idea of you know these, these anxieties about death but then it's also like Oh, but look, it's it's cooler than ever, and that sort of balances that out. There's a, and there's a sense in the film Brazil where it's like you have the two competing methods for de aging, and so the mother uses this like uh, surgical system. It's it's a very weird scene where like her skin's being stretched and this like clear plastic wrapped around her face and all of this and. It looks like horrific, but then you see her later and it's like working really well. But then her friend is using this like acid treatment and we see her occasionally throughout the film and she at first has his bandages and then there's more bandages. And every time you see her, it's getting worse and worse until in this like dream sequence, we see her in this coffin and she's just turned into this like pile of goop. Yeah, I, I think um, there's, I hadn't made that parallel before, but now that I think about it, you know, it's it's really interesting the way that this sort of competing methods of avoiding this fear of death or, or even fear of yourself, that if Brazil's is this sort of competing plastic surgery techniques, then in white noise, it's, it's Dilar, the just hyper advanced pill, or it's consumption. And I think that if we were to 
really go forward with the parallel, Dilar is the failed treatment. It's the failed plastic surgery because the the ending scene with the inventor of the pill, I mean, he's miserable. He's sitting in his room, just popping the things and he's almost not even lucid, just like very on the fringe of his awareness. And he's like an automaton. So he's almost rendered himself inhuman. And on the other hand, I mean, consumption you know, seems to work to a degree. You know, Jack's case right, is yeah. strange because he has the actual airborne toxic event and he thinks it's like endemic in him now and there's no way to avoid it but everybody else gets along just fine by you know watching tv and going shopping and they don't need these pills yeah there, there's a sense that you know the this tv world and consumer world of the supermarkets and so on really does function as its own sort of quality religion in its own way in in terms of like the social function of all of it and and see, the, but that scene with the inventor of dialer is, is crazy where it's like, because it has a side effect where it makes you confuse words for things, right? So Jack is, is toying with him where he's like plane crash, hail of gunfire. And so he's like ducking and crawling across the ground, you know, terrified of, you know, just these, these horrific things that this list of horrific things that Jack is just shooting out. And, and so he, he, he's driving himself so crazy that like, you know, it, it's, he's able to like make it seem like he has committed suicide and, you know, he does end up taking him to the hospital, but like that, that was the idea is like, you know, you can go so crazy with these sorts of cures. And part of that is that, you know, I mean, there are obviously actual, you know, illnesses and, and so on, but, there's also a way in which things can be sort of made up and classified in certain ways that then creates this consumer bracket. And th that I think is, is one of the, the interesting parallels of this, you know, bureaucratic world that's sort of building up over the course of the 20th century, where there's a, there's a comment about the airborne toxic event where it's like uh, that it, that it was originally called the, um, where, where is this? Um, that they're not calling it the black billowing cloud anymore. It's the airborne toxic event. And then there's this thought as if he sensed the threat in state created terminology. And, and it, there's that element of, of it that I think Brazil really hones in on and, and builds up. Yeah, totally. Um, Cause it's almost more benign in Brazil um, just because it's so much more ubiquitous. So like the whole movie is full of these uh, insane bureaucratic vignettes uh, where white noise, it really focuses on that specific one with the, like the simulated evacuation guys. I mean, they, they have like this whole setup that's literally just a bureaucratic game um, to sort of give themselves a job in preparation for an event that likely won't happen again. And in Brazil, it's, they have all these terms and forms and signatures you have to do to go through all this nonsense in order to render yourself alive, even um, to be like recognized as a human within that society. Uh, so I guess the real the real horrifying moment that kind of jolts you in Brazil is when, you know, the original catalyzing moment is a fly is smacked off of a ceiling, falls into some automated typewriter that's going wild, and it causes a T to turn into a B. And so a man named Buttle is confused for a man named Tuttle. And then a SWAT team comes in and just rips him out of his apartment and makes a mess. And ultimately, you know, Buttle dies and he is totally unconnected with the events of the movie because he had nothing to do. It was just a, com a complete accident. And that accident was entirely manufactured by a bureaucratic system. And the way I kind of thought about these two works was in a way, white noise has, because it's not dystopian, we're still in a world that really resembles humanity. And all of the characters um, are still very much human. And I think that DeLillo treats his characters with a sort of love. Um, and really empathizes with them. And Brazil, it's a dystopia. And I don't think um, Gilliam really likes Sam at all. I think uh, he thinks Sam is a, a very selfish person who tried to forsake his name for like some, basically just to hide away in his world and not have to take any part in it. And so in 
white noise, it's the inhuman, the sort of billowing cloud and the airborne toxic event that's encroaching upon the humanity of their, you know, little quaint little town. And then in Brazil, it's humanity encroaching upon inhumanity, which is that sort of totalizing bureaucratic system that almost doesn't even need the people in it to run it. Like that scene you mentioned at the start with all the hustle and bustle in the information retrieval department. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? The boss goes back into the office and then they just stop and turn on the TV. So I think I think it's such an interesting thing that, and it really, it could be American versus British attitudes. Because I mean, I think you even see this in things like The Office, where the British version treats its characters, I think, with some contempt. And the U.S. office uh, adores its characters and really pushes for this kind of sentimental aspect. Yeah, I mean, the, the inter- it's interesting about The Office, where not the, the show, but the the office depicted in the film, right? Where, you know, the people are constantly like crazy busy seeming, but it's all a front. And I think it's interesting is the way in which you have this intense bureaucratic machine and the sense of like the society running with like this almost machine-like perfection but it's all it's all just like a front that it's like they put on the, this act of bureaucratic perfection and you know it's driving them crazy where you have kind of similar to the scene with the creator of dialer it's like the two people come to fix um, sam's heating system and he needs to get them out of there because the harry tuttle had already shown up and he's inside with a gun and He's like, oh, do you have such and such form? And one of the government workers like starts like just stuttering crazy and is almost seizing because he he can't process the fact that he was supposed to have this form and he doesn't have it. And it almost doesn't really matter because later they show up with a different form and they, they've claimed his apartment kind of just out of spite. And so it, it doesn't actually run all that smoothly and nicely and so on. But you have to put up the front of this paperwork. And I, th- I think in the going back to that opening scene, somewhere where that the sort of absurdity of it is made clear is they don't just sort of break into Buttle's apartment, but they also go into the apartment above his and just saw a circular hole in the roof so they could slide down. And <laughs> so, you know, now all of a sudden it gets this neighbor involved and so she's going around like causing a ruckus trying to be like hey you've made a false arrest you've made a false arrest and ends up getting sort of written off as a terrorist who is you know in in leagues with the other presumed terrorist harry tuttle and you know they because because they drilled a hole in her apartment and then they have this thing to fill it in and it falls through the hole and they're like oh they switched you know metric systems on us and then when when we see like weeks later or so on they finally sort of sort out the title buttle mistake and sam goes to the buttle residence to give a refund to the you know the widow now because you know they charge you for the interrogations and so on and so he goes to give her a refund check and the, the hole is still there and so you have this whole system of you know very like precise systems but it you know it, it doesn't actually work and there's there's another instance of that as well with the the singing messenger woman <laughs> yeah. shows up you know and, and then uh is giving him a this message about his mother's party and it's like had already started an hour ago and she's like oh it's um it's the backlog drives people you know drives people mad but you know it is what it is and it's like you know but th- this is obviously not working yeah the whole thing is uh it's an absolute farce and everybody knows it and that's why you know the only christmas present that anybody gives to each other is that little desk paperweight toy that's just a binary randomizer for yes yes or no. And I think there's multiple times in the movie where they refer to it as something for an executive because you know no one's making any decisions. It really doesn't matter. The whole thing is this giant inhuman system. And I think that scene with Sam going to the Buttle's apartment and kind of breaking the news, it's so striking because that's the instance where I was like, you know, Sam isn't a good person. There, there isn't a, a way that you can really empathize with this character where, you know, White Noise, I don't think Jack does anything that's so strikingly evil. I think he's pushed to the edge, of course, with trying to attempt murder. But there's a very, there's a, like a totally different quality of, of evil in that case. You know, Sam has like this distance with uh, someone who's just lost their husband 
and their apartment is an absolute mess because central services that doesn't fix anything. There's no real accountability for it. And Sam is angry when he leaves because he's he's been accosted by this kid that just lost his dad. And so Sam is such a selfish person that is like trying to beat the bureaucracy by following the bureaucratic rules. Uh, and clearly it doesn't it doesn't work out for him. Uh, and I think something that I was thinking about is and I don't think I noticed this on the first time I watched it. I think Harry Tuttle only truly shows up one time in the movie. And that's the first time that Sam meets him in the apartment and he fixes the heating. Then the second time, I'm almost, I'm pretty convinced that Sam at that point had already lost his mind. Because what we see is the two central services guys are in the apartment attempting to fix this uh, massive heating problem, right? And at this point, the apartment is a mess. Every single duct is out and hanging from the ceiling. Uh, the apartment is frozen. So there's literally like the opposite of heat. They've done exactly what Sam didn't want them to do. And they're like moving around in these suits. And then Harry Tuttle supposedly shows up and it's a really disgusting scene. He replaces like the air pipe with the sewer pipe and they're like airtight suits explode with shit. I mean, it's, it's, it's so graphic. And I think that Sam is already at that point inventing a sort of fantasy in his mind of his humanity overcoming the inhuman system. And, and that scene of him looking through the window, I mean, it's the media that he mm -hmm. is already a fan of. He's looking at the TV and laughing at the sort of like Three Stooges black and white farce. And that's exactly what plays out. And then immediately after that, he sees Jill and Jill is now somehow in love with him. So I think Sam as a character fell into the insanity far quicker than Jack did in White Noise. Oh, it's interesting you mentioned that scene being sort of delusion because, uh, you know, I, I just noticed that so, you know, you have Tuttle swapping out the pipes and actually Sam does that same stunt himself. I think a little later than that, where he's in his office and there's the mail pipe and he tries to like mess it up by like quickly putting incoming mail back in the outgoing and back and back and back as has it's like so just looping. Mm -hmm. And then he sets up this like rubber pipe to lead one into the other. So it just clogs. And so, you know, in theory, that could be like, oh, he learned from Harry this this idea of like to swap the pipes and it'll mess up the system but it you know it is it is kind of it, there's also the sense of like that's just like his imagination it's like almost comic idea of like how stuff works and, and he fails even in his imagination because in this sort of final sequence where he's really going the full mile on this dream and he's escaping from central services and he blows it up we still get a scene of rogue paperwork smothering Harry Tuttle and, and killing him so even after exploding the entire building for central services and essentially like a magnified and expanded version of what you just described with him putting the rubber tube and clogging up the pipes, uh, it still comes back. There's a, like a decentralized aspect of this bureaucracy that even in Sam's own fantasy simply can't overcome. There has to be a sacrifice and it has to be this sort of like pure character of Tuttle. Yeah, and that's one of his anxieties, though, this idea of being consumed by this paperwork. And so you see Harry literally consumed by it. And, you know, what's interesting is the um, is that, you know, he has these dreams and, you know, or, so so on one hand, what, what draws him to Jill, and this is part of, uh, you know, to your point that he is actually a kind of like cruel selfish guy is that you know he's obsessed with this woman jill because he, she looks like the woman in his dreams and also you know to that point there's this other woman that his mother is trying to set him up with the, this daughter of the woman who has the acid treatment you know and she is a very sort of homely looking woman with like this giant braces thing wrapped around her head and they they try to set them up together at this party and he's like hey you know sorry i'm not, I'm not interested and she's like oh i don't like you either and then right. and then but then this other guy gets his attention and he stumbles over her kicking her in the leg and so on mm -hmm. and scoffs at him from behind but but you know it's it's so justified like he completely disregards her like presence and humanity at all you know he doesn't care about her at you know, it's not just like, oh, I'll put her down. But it's like, as soon as someone else comes in that he actually wants to talk to, he'll just stumble right over her legs. I, and and you, you had tweeted those pictures of like the terrorist bombings and they're sitting in the restaurant. It's like, well, this is fine. And Sam, you know, he's totally playing along. 
they they set up the the divider and they can no longer see this like horrific terrorist bombing that just occurred within their restaurant and they just they just continue eating whatever whatever it is that's on their plate it looks horrible and the only time that sam ever actually ends up caring about someone else is when he thinks jill is the one inside the bombing in the department store uh and he upon finding you know she's okay he's angry at her because he thinks she's the one that did the bombing. And he's, and I think he's angry, not because she bombed innocent people. Yeah. He's angry because she lied to him, which, I mean, it's just so, it's so, uh, it's so selfish and cruel. Yeah. I I was also, I mean, I was curious about the bombing stuff because, you know, I I wasn't really sure what exactly was going on there. You know, she's accused of being this terrorist and is not, and he thinks she has this bomb in this box and, it's not, but there's this explosion that does happen. And so it seemed to me that part of what was going on was just that you have these old vents everywhere and this old rundown system that's like falling apart and so, and, and so on. You know, one of the first things we see is this ad trying to sell new vents. And so it seems like there's like this two part front where almost where it's like, as the system is exploding, it's like you, you, mitigate liability by saying like oh this is terrorist attacks and then you also you know say and you now you can buy new ones you know but you have to buy them you you as the homeowner consumer or whatever yeah and and it's it's part of this whole system where it's like they'll arrest people uh sometimes even knowing that they're not really even uh guilty you know like a lot of the people involved really understand that jill is is innocent and it's just like she's being a thorn in the side of the bureaucracy and so they've flagged her but um that's that's so clever though that that picture of the terrorist bombings actually being a flaw in like the system because the the first thing i noticed when you kind of boot up brazil is the city is just covered with ducks air ducts it's like every single building no matter what class stratification we're working with whether it's like this most dingy apartment to sam's mom's like penthouse suite it's just ducks everywhere and i think if we think about white noise um the similarly ubiquitous element was this sort of like TV voice. You know, they'd always be having conversations in the house uh, and you'd hear like a TV upstairs or somewhere. And it's this just psychic noise. And I, I think, you know, in Brazil, if the terrorist bombings are truly this, the system falling apart, that's very obvious and it's very easy to tell. But with white noise, you know, you don't have such a simple cause and effect relationship like an explosion. If there's like leakage in the system, if there's this constant psychological noise that's just coming out of the TV all the time, wherever you live then there might be some some you know damage there that simply doesn't take the form of a bombing but could take you know any other kind of form whether it be the anxiety that both jack and babette end up experiencing right yeah and in white noise you know there's the toxic event and there's a comment that these things happen to poor people who live in exposed areas society is set up in such a way that it's the poor and the uneducated who suffer the main impact of natural and man-made disasters and it's interesting you you mentioned how you have the rundown vents everywhere and even in the the mother's fancy apartment you have the same rundown vents and he goes into the the sort of office of like the head guy and you know it's the same so it's interesting you, know, you start with this ad for fancy new vents but that doesn't seem to have been implemented anywhere so you know i'm not quite sure what to make of that right now but that is weird i mean but i think it might just go towards the fact that the system is is useless. In fact, those sorts of like consumer advertisements might simply just be getting phased out because it seems like the dystopian city is almost void of any sort of identifying features that like brands would provide. I mean, uh, I think the image of Sam's apartment right at the start, you know, he's only got like two posters or like decorations on his wall. And one of them is just a picture of a beautiful woman. And it, you know, the text just says screenplay. So it's like an abstracted yeah. celebration of something that's like maybe an identifying feature, but really not quite. Also, you know, going back a bit to this idea of him being sort of selfish and, you know, he's only mad at Jill because he thinks she lied to her and so on. There's also, a you know, interesting things going on with his fantasy world. So one is Tuttle is basically a more, not exactly realistic because he's zip lining across the city in like these absurd ways where it's like, how did that get set up? You know, but he's basically a vaguely achievable version of the adventurous flying person of his dreams. And, you know, he's, he's basically escaped the bureaucratic system 
and he's doing this like repair work for free just because he really likes to do it but he doesn't like to do the paperwork so he goes around and does it for free uh, but then also jill as his dream woman there's this oedipal element to that where you know he he brings her to his mother's apartment and so on and then he goes and later he sees his mother and she has gotten younger and she looks exactly like jill now and there's a weird dynamic with that where like the jill and the mother get conflated over the course of the film and and so he he's really kind of caught up in himself in a lot of ways absolutely and his culminating event is he bangs jill in his mother's bed uh, and if, I mean, we're supposed to take his fantasy at face value, you know, his mother looked like Jill when she was younger. And so, yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very strange. Sam is very neurotic uh, and he's clearly highly intelligent. So that's like, that's part of the story is he had the makings of like, you know, a fine bureaucrat, but just, just didn't want it. Uh, and there's no real explanation for it besides like whatever I'm going to infer, which is that he is he's got no interest in that life, which, you know, I guess it's not a flaw in itself. It looks like a pretty miserable life. Um, but what he made of it is the exact opposite of what Tuttle made of it. You know, Tuttle is, if I had to draw a parallel between the movie and the book, Tuttle is, is basically wilder. You know, he's their infant son because he's like pure, he's un unaffected by all these things. And he kind of cuts through the white noise, if you will, of the bureaucracy and like fixes things in the most simple manner where the actual bureaucracy just kind of gets involved and, and messes it up. Tuttle is totally un unaffected by the inhumanity of the bureaucracy, just like Wilder is completely unaffected by the aching fear of death that Babette and Jack are so anxious to get rid of. And I mean, there's also the sense that the fantasy world, which is partly drawn out of media that Sam has, is, is almost sort of necessary accompaniment to this sort of inhuman world. And there's there's this idea within the novel of it, you know, this idea of like the psychic data, even in the sort of lowest TV and, and so on, that has this this meaning and some sense of beauty that is sort of necessary to prop up this increasingly bureaucratic world. And there's this comment about what one of the, the daughters is transcribing names and phone numbers of friends from one book to another, and there's no addresses. It says her, phone, her, her friends had phone numbers only, a race of people with a seven-bit analog consciousness, and then later getting a new automated banking card in the mail. It's like, know your code, reveal your code to no one. Only your code allows you to enter the system. And, you know, they're, they're both caught up in within this idea of, you know, this, this, is, this is 1985, you know, computer technology is starting to grow out, you know, especially for business uses and, you know, starting to trickle into sort of early personal computers and so on. And I think there's a sort of shared anxiety between them about increasingly, you know, people will be these sorts of like computer entries, you know, and this, this sense of the like simulated reality on top of the reality and so then you have the actual chemical event in the novel but then you also have simuvac where they're using the real event to simulate evacuation and so they're, they're using instead of just like doing an evacuation they're simulating an evacuation and there's this terrifying moment for jack where he he thinks at one point how within the simulation, I think he's like technically dead. And, you know, th th there's that whole thing that you see as well in the film where it's like Sam's plan to try to save Jill is that he'll break into the computer system and make it so that she's dead, which means that even though they can see her right there, he fully believes that he could say like, I know you're here to arrest this woman. You could just see her sit sitting next to me, but it says in the computer that she's dead. So you should just leave. Yeah. And you know, those those scenes in White Noise are so funny because it's all of these doctors looking at Jack's simulated data. You know, you just imagine them like turning the page in the clipboard and being like, oh, yep, you've got the bracketed numbers and stars here. It's looking real rough for you. And they never once explain. Of course, they don't. They don't explain what is what does the bracketed number and stars mean? And supposedly it's some sort of quantitative measure of the niodine D chemical that is like in Jack's system. But it's so funny that, you know, the only thing that they can 
say about it is that you know 50 or 60 years you're probably going to pass away and it's like well jack's probably going to die in that time range anyways uh and so they're, they're not giving any useful information and i think what they they call it when jack first goes into that conversation with the simuvac guys is the simuvac guy calls it a massive database tally and that's essentially what people are doing in brazil um the whole movie is sam looking at these computers at different security levels and doing massive database tallies of the individual people he's looking for. Uh, and ultimately, he doesn't really get any information on them. Um, he has no idea what the dead Tuttle's wife is like. He just sort of goes over there and, and wings it. He has no idea what Jill is like. He thinks she's a terrorist. Uh, there's no real information being gathered there. Uh, and in the same sense, you know, White Noise, they're, they've got a massive database tally that's essentially meaningless. All it does for Jack is causes him to live a simulation of his own life where his fear of death is suddenly exacerbated because he thinks he's going to die when the information they've told him is nothing new. Of course, he's going to die in 50 or 60 years. He's probably around that age. I mean, he's getting up there. Yeah. And people basically just believe what they're shown, what they're told, and they're not really in tune with their feelings. There's this comment around the toxic events like deja vu, whoever was no longer a working symptom of niodine contamination. If Steffi had learned about deja vu on the radio, but then missed the subsequent upgrading to more deadly conditions, it could mean she was in a position to be tricked by her own apparatus of suggestibility. And there's a sense of like, you know, people getting sort of almost kind of fake sick because they they had read that like, oh, this was a symptom of what happened. And then, they, you know, it, it turns out that's not true, but they believe it. So they, they start to carry out that sort of narrative that they've been given. And so in that sense, you have the German nuns at the end who they're like, you know, we don't believe in in you know, devil angels, heaven, hell, all this stuff. But we feel it's important to embody these old beliefs because without this, the world would collapse. And, and so you have these systems uh, of meaning. Yeah, and there was a few strange, like, throwaway lines about how Iron City, the, you know, major metropolitan area around where they live in Blacksmith, has no media. So there's just no media that covers anything that happens in the city. And there's that, there's that one line where... Jack is um, at the airport waiting for his daughter and he sees people like stumble out down the terminal and someone tells a story about how like they were on this flight and everybody thought they were going to crash and that they were going to die. And they all had these really like transcendent moments of, you know, either peace or terror. Or they were frightened. Um, and I think someone says like, you know, where's the media? And, you know, someone else says, well, there's no media in Iron City. And the other person goes, you know, so they did all that for nothing. Uh, and I think that ending scene with the German nuns, they mention how like that that part of the city is already like emptying out because it's almost like in that hyper reality, the super simulated world that they live in, in, in Blacksmith, especially after the airborne toxic event, it's almost like inconceivable for this type of um, or this this people that's been so subjected to hyper reality to even conceive of reality without media reinforcement. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, Steffi and her constant you know misdiagnoses of herself and suggestibility is like indicative of what everybody is feeling maybe in iron city so like i i really was curious like would iron city like in this world just be a sort of husk and a slowly emptying husk of a city where people like didn't have proper reactions to things just because they weren't already taught by their media reinforcement to react to these things right yeah there's there's a lot of anxiety around you know going back to this idea that you know infants respond to stimuli and we lead the world in stimuli the sense of as that system of stimuli breaks down and becomes more and more devoid of meaning it's like what then sort of becomes of of the world and you know one thing i think is interesting is you know so so to look at jack's obsession with you know hitler and he teaches his course advanced nazism you know and so one of the main things he studies is the continuing mass appeal of fascist tyranny with special emphasis on parades rallies and uniforms and there's a comment later on it says to become a crowd is to keep out death to break off from the crowd is to risk death as an individual to face dying alone and you know, in Brazil, you know, people are very kind of like hive mindish. You, you see like groups of people in the office moving together as like this one mass on a few occasions. And, you know, 
Sam, one of his problems is that he's a very isolated individual who doesn't really fit in. He doesn't really feel like he has these connections. He has that that one friend that he sees occasionally, but they're they're kind of distant. And all he really has is his mother. He's a bit of a mama's boy, and she's like managing his career and so on. Uh, and he's you know desperately dreams about finding a woman you know his own age to fall in love with and and so on. But um, there's a comment in White Noise as, as well that Jack notes that Hitler was a mama's boy and. I think there, there's there's this distinction within his study of Hitler where it's like you have Hitler as this kind of isolated mama's boy figure versus the crowds who sort of worship him and and sort of lead this charge. And I think there, there's this dynamic around, you know, what that isolation does in terms of this relationship to death and then like, you know, the creation of stimuli that guides the sort of crowd who kind of just moves along in the natural flow through sort of developed rituals and so on. Yeah, and that was one of the most, you know, touching things about the novel was after the airborne toxic event, everybody was going to see the sunsets. And they said that they're so much brighter, they're so much more spectacular, so much they're so amazing now. And immediately people are theorizing like, well, it must be the chemicals left over in the air like causing some kind of fractalization or you know, some lighting effect. When I mean, it's pretty clear to me that they had a brush with death and you know, their lives are changed in the sense that if life is what allows them to experience things, they're no longer experiencing things from the same frame they were before. But they just simply can't understand that that level because they're so, you know, I, I really don't know why. Um, maybe it's that they're all so obsessed with this fear of death. But, you know, you kind of want to slap Jack and Babette both and, and let them know that, you know, fear of death is is so natural to humanity. And it is, in fact, what gives so much life to existence. And Murray at the end sort of addresses this in a way where he talks about, well, he says almost the exact opposite of what um, Jack says about how like all plotting leads to death. Murray says the, the opposite. He says like plotting is life. It's the expansion of human consciousness. And he's trying to encourage Jack to go kill someone. That That is like, that's the method. Um, and perhaps there's some kind of weird Oedipal perversion here. If we even want to tie it in in that you know if Oedipus kills his 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 father Jack is going to kill the man who had relations with his wife uh and he imagines this is going to somehow fix things you know and it doesn't it doesn't do a thing because the answer you know the whole time was to simply reframe the way he's thinking about this fear of death is to escape the simulation right yeah I mean it's interesting you know so he's driven to shoot this man and then in Sam's fantasy, right, to, to go back to this idea of like, you know, the, the isolated individual, like, you know, driven to this thing is like, so there's throughout the film, there's this idea of these terrorist attacks. And then we meet Harry Tuttle. And, you know, it turns out he's not actually a terrorist. He's like kind of just helping people out. But he isn't doing the paperwork. So he's like a threat to the system. And but in his fantasy at the end, you know, by the end, Sam does want to become a terrorist. He wants that to be a reality and wants to be a part of it. And one of the most striking bits is when they're getting him out of the facility, you know, of Harry Tuttle and like the other people in their like ski masks and stuff, such, you know, they're, they're shooting their way out, like just killing a bunch of people who are just, you know, like Sam, these other cogs in the bureaucracy. And, but I, I was very struck by this one moment where I think one of the people gets like shot and killed and Sam motions to Harry to like, oh, pass me his gun. And so now he has a gun too, and they're they're blowing up the building, you know, full of people. And, you know, Harry, you know, lets Sam press down on the trigger for that. And so he, you know, he really ends up with this very violent sort of uh, reaction to all of this. And that's a sort of fantasy. But then there's also this weirdness to it, right? Because so the thing with the title Brazil right comes from this song that he's singing at the end and and so from what I read it was like you know the director was saying he had heard this in this place that had been visibly very bleak but people would sing this like happy song about like nostalgia and like oh beautiful Brazil and so on and you know that's that's the fantasy that's going on in the sort of like brain dead Sam's mind at the end when he's strapped to the chair and and so he he's seems to be like, you know, fantasizing this like idealistic thing. But then it's also 
you know, what we see as the viewers into his mind is, you know, this, this wild shootout. Yeah. And that moment is just tr- is tr- the most brilliant part of the movie when torturing Jack, you know, Sam's friend, and uh, I think it's Heckman's head, they swing into the frame. The music cuts to silent. Uh, the backdrop changes back into this giant silo and the fantasy is over. It's over. You see Sam is is lost his mind completely. And they're like, oh, I guess this one's gone. And they wheel him off. And then it zooms out into this the, the picture of the silo and Sam sitting in the middle. And he's so small at this point. And the music comes back in. And I, I mean, I get chills just thinking about it because it's such a great way to end this movie about inhumanity. The music fades in. There's lyrics for, I think, maybe just a verse and a chorus. And then it's just like a huge choir of just vocalizing the melody. And it's all this drums and rhythm. And I mean, it's so lively. It's so exuberant. And it's it's, it's a, such a stark contrast to what we just saw in the whole movie, which is the complete loss of humanity across this bureaucratic system. So the movie ends on Sam living a, a fantasy in his head of pure exuberant humanity just in its most like primal state just joyous and and bright and he's living it out with his dream girl in some you know in brazil in some forested wonderland uh i just think that's such pure that's such pure gilliam it's so brilliant all right yeah yeah so because that's part of it is that they kind of you know do this like return to tradition and they're like living out in this little you know they prop up a little farm somewhere in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm uh, and it, you know, it's, it's very, you know, the interesting, you know, striking visually as well, where it's like the highway is just this like corridor of billboards that are, you know, this solid block of billboard after billboard forming these walls right around the roads around, which is just like just absolute wasteland. Yeah. His <laughs> fantasy doesn't exist anymore. It's, and he has no clue. Cause you know, there's no view of outside. I don't even know where he would have gotten the images of that fantasy in his head except through the sort of propaganda billboards that end up lining the highway that show these images of like happy families and old you know 60s style convertibles uh it just isn't even real anymore so it really is truly a fantasy a total unattainable fantasy right but it's but it's interesting you know so there's the positive things that seem to have no place in the bureaucracy which which is sort of just concerned with you know the numbers of everything and doesn't have room for like these sort of human connections and you know real meaning and so on. But but also the terrorist part of his fantasy is from this bureaucratic government, which is like this is what they're saying is happening. And you know, he just sort of imagines that, you know, it's it's not that part's not from you know his his own imagination where like what he imagines is like this was you know much simpler, like he's in this like armor with wings and he has a sword and fights this you know knight or something and you know what he learns from this bureaucracy which sort of just has this very simplistic system of you know there's the natural flow of things and there's terrorism is this idea of people repelling through the roof of the silo interestingly is direct parallel to the beginning of the film where they're repelling into the buttle apartment you know, just shooting their way through and blowing stuff up. And, and see, I mean, I, th- I think there's, there's something, there's a, you know, really deep critique to, to all of that where it's like, you know, the, what, what are the stimuli that you offer? And, and so, you know, bringing it back to the novel, it's like you have in these American B movies and, you know, drive-in movies and so on. It's like these horrific car crashes and stuff, but there's something I don't know, aspirational about the the craft of like what is being blown up and how they pull it off and and all of that and the sense of building up to something greater than yourself. Uh that that's not I guess it's not bleak, right? It's not it's not like um this like systematic Holocaust situation, right? It's like it's just like this one fiery explosion on the highway or something. Yeah. It's like the images that are provided to us are just simply better than the ones that we come up with ourselves. So even Sam's fantasy is simulated. It's, it's received uh, because yeah, there's that sense of the people who are, whose job it is to craft the most grandiose, violent, extreme images are going to be really good at it. 
and they're going to get into your head. And it totally worked for Sam. Sam's fantasy that he lives out supposedly for the rest of his life, you know, insane inside his head is one that is uh, sort of manufactured by the system that he was rebelling against. Yeah. I thought that Heinrich as a character was representative of um, the loss of meeting that really ended up consuming Jack and Babette by the end. Um, because Heinrich is a young guy who has this uh, immovable view of things as completely atomic and that everything is a product of brain chemistry and um, determined physics. And I, I think that really, um, you know, it, it bothers Jack quite a bit because Jack is his dad and he has those extremely awkward conversations with Heinrich who Babette already has said is like afraid that he's going to become like a mass shooter because he's so strange. And so Jack goes in and has these, you know, horrible conversations with Heinrich where Heinrich is just saying, oh, nothing we do matters. It's all mere brain chemistry determined since the start of the universe. There's nothing we can do. It doesn't mean anything. And I think there's a sense that a lot of Jack's anxiety is probably caused by that. Uh, he just simply can't put a finger on it because he's so consumed with um, his sort of identity as it's wrapped up in all kinds of other things. I mean, if you're if you're the head of Hitler studies, I don't think you can really afford to consider whether all of Hitler's actions that you've been so uh, obsessed with analyzing for decades is actually just a product of like just determined physics from the start of the universe. I think that would really screw up your frame of reference. And I thought Heinrich in particular was so interesting in contrast to the other children who all had their own distinct identities that to a certain extent almost seem like they were constructed by Jack who had like a an idea of them that they always seem to live up to to a degree I think Heinrich really gets into this extreme version of this idea that builds up a lot throughout the thing and you know it goes back to what we we're talking about about receive stimuli and then what you become of that and you know wondering what will become of this sort of next generation brought up under these other conditions and uh you know I think maybe to sort of wrap up on this, there's a great quote early on where it's like maybe there is no death as we know it just documents changing hands and so that's this great anxiety throughout the novel and it's also you know one of the things going on in the film as well it's like you have this like mass of busied people running around with documents and you know one typo goes wrong and that's you know someone's life but the system has really no time to worry about that all they care about is that they correct the paperwork and get everything right within the sort of like letter of the system. Yeah, that's great. That fits so perfect between the two. Pretty shocking. Yeah. So, you know, thanks for, you know, bringing up this, this film, which ended up, you know, forming this really wonderful relationship with white noise and thanks for coming on and talking about these works. This was a great discussion. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Uh...